0: Socio political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, Sally, Sally,
1: Sally. Welcome to season two, episode 10 of YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who occupy the middle seat in American politics. Now, this is the final in our series on America's withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of our 20-year war on terror. And one of the things that came up early on in this series, the first episode I did with Benari Polton, was that while we ascribe things like poverty and political repression to terrorism, the people who often carry it out are comfortable people. They're not the oppressed, disenfranchised folks we often cite. And that goes for whether we're talking about the 9-11 hijackers or the people who attack the Capitol. And I looked more into the subject and came across the work of this episode's guest, Kasim Kassam, professor of philosophy at the University of Warwick in the UK. His new book, Extremism, A Philosophical Analysis, examines the philosophical distinction between extremists and society at large and cites conspiracy theory as a key driver of extremist ideologies. And while the original premise of this episode was designed to focus on the Islamic extremism that caused 9-11, we couldn't help but veer into the current political environment here in the United States where both conspiracy theory and political extremism seem all the rage. Odd how these things always seem to come full circle. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. So I uh, alluded to this in my in my email. What prompted me to find some of your work was a discussion I had with one of the guests on the current series I'm working on in, uh, on the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan and looking back on 9-11. And one of the conclusions that we came to was that the people who were responsible for orchestrating the attacks on 9-11. And for that matter, if you look at some contemporary examples of domestic terrorism or political violence, such as the attack on the Capitol here in the United States, these are comfortable people. These are people who you would assume to have little grievance. And so it really got me down the trail of trying to understand what it is that brings people To extremism, what creates extremists? What makes them? And maybe what we can do to prevent more of them from popping up. And that's that's where I found you. So before we get into that subject, though, I think it would be great for the listener to understand, you know, your field of study and really where your focus is. So, do you mind stating that?
0: Yeah. So I'm a I'm a philosopher, and um, within philosophy, I mainly do something called epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge, trying to understand human knowledge, what it is, how we get it, and in particular, why we fail to obtain it in some cases. Um, And so a few years ago, I was starting to think about uh, cases where we end up with what I would regard as false and unfounded beliefs about one thing or another and trying to figure out how that happens, why it happens. And a case I latched onto was in fact uh, conspiracy theories about 9-11, a very controversial subject, Uh, and I was interested in the question why people end up believing these uh, conspiracy theories which by my lights are completely unfounded. So that was the starting point and I ended up writing a book about conspiracy theories and why people believe them. So the book about conspiracy theories came out in in 2019 and one of the things that that was uh, sort of present in the book, but not really very well developed, was the relationship between uh, belief in conspiracy theories and extremism. So one of the things I say in the book is that, uh, of course, not all conspiracy theorists are extremists, but it's very striking how Many extremists are conspiracy theorists, uh, including the 9-11 hijackers who subscribe to you know, fairly standard anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories of, of one sort or another. So I had the feeling that there was more to say about you know, extremism and the relationship between extremism and conspiracy theories, but also you know, more to say in general terms about, about extremism. And I, I've also been interested uh, on, on, on terrorism. And, you know, like many people, my interest in this subject was really awakened on 9-11. I mean, it so happened that I was uh, in the States on 9-11, not in New York, somewhere else. And, you know, obviously it was an incredible, incredible thing to have witnessed. And, and you know, it, it got me interested in the subject. And I, I remain you know, very interested in, in thinking philosophically about extremism and trying to figure out what philosophy has to contribute. So there's a kind of trio of concerns, conspiracy theories, extremism and terrorism, uh, all of which I, I, you know, I'm interested in and which are related to each other
1: in, I think, quite interesting ways. It's, it's interesting you say that, too, because really what, what prompted me to start this podcast was the idea that here in the United States, we seem to have an inability to reach any f- shared truth. So, you know, great example here in the U.S. is the debate on climate change. And what you generally have or what these debates generally consist of are two lay people, you know, throwing their own spreadsheets and data points at each other until they run out of time to argue and nothing's resolved. And, you know, we're seeing a similar thing go on in this country with COVID. So, you, you know, you mentioned that, not all conspiracy theorists are extremists but all extremists are conspiracy theorists so is conspiracy theory sort of the gateway drug to extremism if you will that's
0: that's exactly how i I'd, I'd, I'd describe it so if one looks at conspiracy theories one thing that's very striking is that a lot of uh, conspiracy theories you know have ideological associations that are quite important for understanding them you know, so if you think about, you know, conspiracy theories, you know, about George Soros and the migrant caravan and all that stuff that was floating around, I mean, clearly these are part of a anti-Semitic uh, discourse which is associated with the extreme left and the extreme right, which has a you know which has a long and awful history, and it's not as if you know the extremism and the conspiracy theories are just, it's, it's just a coincidence that pe- people who are you know far right extremists believe conspiracy theories, they they're integral to each other so now you you think of someone who isn't you know committed to a particular extremist ideology but gets drawn into conspiracy theories it's then kind of very easy for for them to make the transition from an interest in conspiracy theories to the broader ideologies that these conspiracy theories are very often a part of Now, I mean, one thing that people sometimes say is that, well, you know, you're you're representing conspiracy theories as having these ideological connotations, but, you know, what about conspiracy theories about the disappearance of Elvis or something like that? You know, well, where's the politics in that? And I think what I want to say about that is that, you know, those are the conspiracy theories that I think of as real sort of gateway drugs. I mean, they seem kind of harmless enough, and in, in a certain sense, you know, they are. But, What happens, I think, is that if once you start looking into even these so-called harmless conspiracy theories, you very quickly and easily get drawn into the more toxic type of conspiracy theory. I mean, that's just the way that, you know, YouTube's algorithms work. You know, if you show an interest in conspiracy theories, you're going to end up very rapidly you know, with all sorts of conspiracy theories that are kind of far from harmless. So one thing I argued in my conspiracy theories book is that, you know, whether you realize it or not, whether you intend it or not, when you enter this discourse, you are entering a discourse with a long tradition, with its own, you know, background assumptions and, and tropes. And that these are, in fact, in, if you look at the, the history of the 20th century, I mean, anti-Semitism, has played a major role in conspiracy theorizing, certainly in, you know, in Europe and in, and in the U.S. Uh, not all conspiracy theories are anti-Semitic, but a very important uh, variety of conspiracy theories certainly is, you know, a- anti-Semitic. And of course, this, you know, saying things like that causes all sorts of problems, because of course, there are also people who regard themselves as political liberals who see their conspiracy theorizing not as, you know, as having anything to do with anti-Semitism, but more as a way of holding the establishment to account. And and, and I suppose one of the missions of, of my book on conspiracy theories was to, you know, was to convince people like that, that... Um, you know, it's fine. Of course, you know, government should be held to account and so on. But but you're, you're sort of you're sort of playing with fire once you get into this territory. And it's, there's a slippery slope, I think, from, you know, the benign to the far from benign in the world of conspiracy theories. And I really want to convince people not to, you know, not to not to get into all that, but without, you know, without thereby, you know, accepting you know, the official view. I mean, of course, you know, one needs to be questioning and one needs to be skeptical. But, of course, that applies to conspiracy theories themselves.
1: It's interesting. One of the things I picked up from some of your work I dug into is, and, and one of the things you said, was how conspiracy theory, in a way, is is almost a coping mechanism, a way to deal with big events that elicit a very strong emotional response. So, you know, 9-11, the assassination of JFK are two very big ones. And then t- to your point, something you alluded to earlier, You know, Elvis might seem a little bit trivial, but he had a lot of fans. And One question I had for you on that front is, is there a case where conspiracy theory is in a way applied indirectly to deal with some emotional stress? So an example I'll use is a common trope that we heard about incidents of terrorism arising from the Middle East. So whether it be Al Qaeda or ISIS or whatnot, it was the result of poverty and it was the result of it was the result of repressive regimes. Or if you want to take it a step further, bring a domestic example here in the US, you know, the folks who attacked the Capitol. It was a case of a large group of people who were abandoned economically due to globalization. But, you know, when you hone in on the people actually responsible for committing the acts. They're not the people who are necessarily affected by these factors. So is there is there something else? Is it the stress of existing in such a regime that is then indirectly applied to an alternative conspiracy theory that may not actually relate directly to what you're mad about or what you're anxious about?
0: Yeah, so, so that's a kind of really complicated you know, question. I mean, so one, so one issue there is, is what are the, what are the psychological attractions of belief in conspiracy theories? And a, and you know, and a common enough thought is that you know, conspiracy theories help to make sense of what would otherwise be sort of meaningless events, um, or they or they attribute causes to these events that are proportionate to their scale. You know, so a standard thing that people say about the JFK assassination is that. You know, a lot of people found the idea that that Oswald acted alone, you know, kind of unsatisfying because he Oswald was once famously described as the loser's loser. And it's sort of hard to get your mind around the fact that Oswald could pull pull off something like that. You know, so, so that's one of the psychological attractions of JFK conspiracy theories or, you know, the death of Princess Diana in a car crash. You know, surely there had to be more to it than that, more more to it than simply a drunk driver. Um, so, so there's some, some of the some of the kind of psychological attractions, I think, of of belief in conspiracy theories. I, I think a different, you know, a different question. I think is, you know, concerns various kinds of extremists and why they're drawn to the causes that they're drawn to. And one thought that you you, you might have, and which I think really is what you're getting at, is that um, you know, if you think about someone like. Uh, Muhammad Atta, who was the the lead 9/11 hij- hijacker, you know, one thing that people said about Atta was that, well, you know, it's all very well talking about you know poverty in the Middle East and all that marginalisation and so on. But you know, Atta was um, middle class. You know, Atta was, you know, he went to he went to university in, in in Germany. He spoke German. He spoke English. He was an educated guy, and 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 wasn't you know a directly. Uh, the victim of you know, poverty and marginalization. So, so I think that's, that's, a, you know, that's an important point. And I think that shows that you're not going to explain his action just by talking about you know, these very broad kind of socioeconomic uh, factors. Um, so then you get into the question, well, OK, so why and how did he become radicalized? How and why you know, do people like him become radicalized? And I guess what I think about that is, that is that, you know, there isn't going to be just one story. People get radicalized in all sorts of different ways. I mean, there are multiple pathways to radicalization. But if one had to make a kind of general comment on, on, on radicalization, I think what happens when people become radicalized is that they come to accept a certain narrative, a narrative that explains why the world is the way it is, and a narrative that identifies why these people or their communities or their in-group are victimized. And these narratives can be extremely powerful and extremely compelling. And people become radicalized by acceptance of these narratives. So if you think about someone like like Atta and the 9-11 hijackers, I mean, of course, they had a narrative, which was the, you know, the standard al-Qaeda narrative, a narrative about, you know, the U.S. invading Muslim countries and, you know, uh, stationing troops in Saudi Arabia And essentially, you know, a kind of anti-American narrative of a very familiar kind. And they also then, you know, they also managed to convince themselves that, that, you know, they're doing the right thing. You know, they're fighting for their own people and their own, their own religion. And you know, they, in fact, see themselves as, you know, highly virtuous individuals, you know, sacrificing themselves for a higher cause. And the, and the, co- the higher cause is political. You know, it's a political cause. I mean, there is all this stuff about religion that, that you know, people very often mention. They talk about religious extremism. But it is very striking that certainly the objectives of the 9-11 hijackers were, as far as I can see, were really, you know, political. And so you, you need to understand why these narratives are attractive to them and why of all the millions of people in the world who accept this narrative, this handful, only this handful go on to commit these terrible Terrible acts. You know, it's not as if the it's not as if the narrative about the U.S. that was believed by Atta was you know is not believed by a lot of other people in the Middle East. But of course, most people don't turn to acts of you know of uh, of mass murder as as he did. You know, so that's the real challenge. How do you explain the fact that you know out of all the people who you know who share his views, only a handful go on to become terrorists? And that is you know that is the million dollar question not only in the philosophy of terrorism, but it's the million dollar question uh, for the intelligence community. How do you identify these people?
1: Uh, and it's a, it's a tough job, clearly. And I, I, I wanna get into the path to extremism. There's you know, one other question I have on conspiracy theory before we move on, which is, you know, the other thing I, I learned from digging into your work is that conspiracy theorists all generally are very skeptical of official institutions. Uh, and very skeptical of government, for example. Um, Are there cases where external conditions create uh, the right environment for uh, the creation of conspiracy theorists? So here in the United States, if you look at the financial crisis that took place in 2008, or the growth and wealth disparity that has taken place since then, the war in Iraq, there have been a number of areas where... Uh, the United States government has earned the distrust of its people, and I, I wonder, is that a case where we are creating conditions ripe for more conspiracy theorists, or we're making it easier for people to fall into that?
0: Yes. So just thinking about the starting point of your question, you know, the idea that conspiracy theorists are people who are very skeptical about uh, go- governments or people in power. Well, they are and they aren't. I mean, of course, they're very skeptical about their motives. And I think it's true that, that, you know, corrupt governments are more likely to lead people to be skeptical about them. So, you know, one question that's very often asked is why are conspiracy theories more prevalent in the Middle East than anywhere else in the world? And a kind of standard answer to that is that, well, so many Middle Eastern governments are just so terribly corrupt. right? So it's kind of not unreasonable that people should be very uh, suspicious of them. But in, in another sense, I think conspiracy theorists, certainly if one's looking at conspiracy theorists in North, North America and in Europe, are remarkably unskeptical about government. Um, I mean, what they think is that governments actually have the capacity to, to mount and keep secret these unbelievably sophisticated and elaborate conspiracies that they talk about. Right? So they seriously believe that the, that the U.S. government was able to fake the moon landings and keep it secret all this time or that the bush administration had the comp- had the competence and the skill required to to cause the 9/11 attacks by you know uh, controlled demolition or whatever your favorite conspiracy theory is i mean the thing i want to say to that is that is that i mean far from being skeptical people who think that are just staggeringly naive and they just massively underestimate the sheer incompetence of most of our governments right i mean uh, governments leak they can basically nothing remains secret for very you know for very long I mean how many people would need to have been involved in faking the moon landings I mean thousands and thousands of people would need to have been involved right and so what the hypothesis is that 52 years on not a single one has has come has has leaked anything about this it's incredible you know if you look at the way that the Bush administration screwed up the invasion of Iraq I mean a just a catalog of failures. I mean, it was you know leaving aside the rights and wrongs of the invasion, the execution was just dreadful, and the idea that those guys, who could screw something up so badly, something like the Iraq invasion up so badly, nevertheless had it in them to to do nine eleven and keep it se- you know keep it secret. I mean, it's incredible, right? And so what you know, so what I want really want to say to you know conspiracy theorists is: look, if you're going to be skeptical try and be consistently skeptical right try try and actually be skeptical about the you know the capacities that you're attributing to people in power and and how about being you know being skeptical about your own theories you know they're they're very skeptical about the official view and you know engage in most extraordinary uh nitpicking when it comes to the official view but when it comes to their you know to other conspiracy theories or their own conspiracy theories you know they'll let most bizarre you know contradictions pass without Uh, without any comment. So it's not skepticism at all.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I've picked up as I've been talking, I've been very quick as I've gone through this exercise of, I've been very quick to assign a lot of these things to environmental factors or try and figure out, are there some external factors that make an environment that's more ripe for conspiracy theorists? From what I'm hearing from you, it, it, it sounds like a lot of it is up to the individual. And, and that that seems to be the best way to combat it. Am I understanding you correctly or, or no? Well, in a way, yes. I
0: mean, that is to say you're not going to identify environmental factors that are anything like sufficient on their own to trigger belief in conspiracy theories or to trigger extremism. I mean, there might be very broad background enabling conditions that are that are sort of risk factors for, for you know, for these you know, for these beliefs. But if you really you know want to explain why this particular individual ended up believing the things that he or she ended up believing you're going to have to explain this in a much more person-specific way i think you're going to have to arrive at, at the kind of understanding of the individual that you know the biographers have really uh and it's very hard to achieve in any given case i mean so you know we now know quite a lot about atta so you can think about him and about well why did he end up end up believing the things that he believed and you know, you you can identify kind of personal factors, facts about his personal history that start to make sense of his beliefs. So you're right that I I think that there is a big you know there is a kind of big individual factor. But you know the other thing to say, think you know thinking about conspiracy theories about the the last American election. I mean, the motivations are obviously kind of political, right? So who are the people who believe that? Who are the people who tend to believe that? Um, the election was stolen for Trump. Well, you know, surprise, surprise, supporters of Trump. Right? It, but it's you know equally true that you know, during the Trump administration, uh, I mean, there were all these conspiracy theories about Trump being, you know, uh, being blackmailed by Putin, uh, the whole, you know, the whole Russia thing. Uh, well, who are the people who believe that primarily? Well, you know, of course, liberal opponents of Trump. So in both of these cases, the, the political explanation, you know, is the obvious explanation. Of course, you then might say, well, okay, but now you have to explain why someone's a liberal and why someone is a Trumpian. And that's a whole other, you know, that's a whole other conversation that, that you know, that one would have. But, you know, the obvious explanation for belief in the stolen election conspiracy theory is that it's it's people who are supportive of Trump, who do not regard the Democrats as, as legitimate in, in in some sense. And that's what makes this theory attractive and i don't even know how many of the people who say these things even believe them themselves right i mean a lot of people will say the election was stolen as a kind of move in in uh, political discussion without necessarily i think believing it uh, believing it themselves it's a kind of provocation you know and i think conspiracy theories have this you know have this role that they they'd often devised by provocateurs and 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 used in that In that spirit. Now, of course, on the liberal side, I'm sure a lot of people want to say, well, the reason they believed in the Russia, you know, Trump, Russia conspiracy theories was that, you know, there was evidence of such a of such a conspiracy. Well, I'm not so sure that there was. But in any case. I mean, the more obvious, I think, explanation for their, you know, their willingness to believe these theories was that, of course, it fitted it fitted in with anti-Trump views, right? I mean, they thought that Trump was a crook, and here was a theory that was was in was in keeping with that in keeping with that view. You know, so you have a range of factors here. You have these broad brush, socioeconomic structural factors that you started out with. Then there are considerations of ideology that play a big role. You know, where you stand on the political spectrum. And then lastly, there are questions of personal biography. You know, what is it about your life and your personal individual trajectory that explains why you end up where you end up, politically speaking? And I think that, you know, belief in conspiracy theories or extremism or any of these things is the joint product of at least these, you know, these three factors. And maybe there are more, you know, maybe there are facts about individual psychology, the stuff that psychologists talk about. Maybe there are personality traits. I mean, you know psychologists think that there is a you know, conspiracy mentality, which is a personality trait that disposes people who have it, believe conspiracy theories. So there's a whole kind of mass of different things that are at, at, at issue here. And and I think one just needs to kind of get away from the idea that there's a single, you know, there's a single explanation There, you know, there isn't, there's a whole lot of different, a whole lot of different explanations. But you can highlight some explanations which you think have been neglected and and in the case of conspiracy theories i think you know the ideological explanation for belief in conspiracy theories is is one that i've tried to highlight but not in the spirit of saying this is this is all there is to it of course there are many things to it
1: 40 percent, folks That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform but to get the center back into the conversation And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, Ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. Part of the reason I think this conversation is so important is because you know as we reflect back on nine eleven too, and we we look at you know the nature of things here in the United States, I think it's clear from you know talking with you and from from what I've dug into that you know conspiracy theories really provide a, a feeder system to extremism. You know I think we've already seen the violence that conspiracy theory can cause here in the United States, both on nine eleven and you know, just recently on January 6th. And so, you know, I think this is a problem we have to attack. I, I want to get to that next step, though, which is, you know, you, you talked about Muhammad Atta earlier on and how there are lots of people who believe and believed what, what he believed. What's the difference? What what a, what makes an extremist different from your everyday conspiracy theorist? Uh,
0: well, the term extremist, I think, needs a little bit of unpacking. Right? So... so uh, I think that extremist kind of refers to three different, one of three different things. So uh, first of all, there's extremism understood as ideological extremism. So an ideological extremist is just someone who subscribes to an extremist ideology. So that can be kind of an extremist form of Islamism, or it can be extreme right or extreme left. Now, that's a perfectly respectable notion of extremism. Um, but it only gets you so far when it comes to explaining, you know, acts of terrorism, right? because because the you know the ideological views of Atta are not you know vastly different from the ideological views of many many other people who certainly didn't turn to, to you know turn to violence. So, so so ideology is part of the mix, but that's one and only one factor. A, a second type of extremism is what I call methods extremism. So a methods extremist is someone who not only has an extremist ideology but someone who's who endorses the use of and indeed is willing themselves to use extreme methods in pursuit of their ideological objectives so uh, extremism in this sense is all about the methods that you use and and an extreme method well there are lots of you know there's a lot that can be said about what counts as an extreme method but the most straightforward view is that extreme methods are basically violent they they involve the use of violence or indeed extreme violence uh, so that's extremism in the methods sense. Right? So, so if you're thinking about, you know, Atta, he was not only an ideological extremist, he was a methods extremist. Right? He thought that, that it was, it was legitimate and appropriate for him and others to use extreme violence in pursuit of their ideological objectives. And then the third type of extremism which I talk about, which in a way I think is the most kind of fundamental and the most interesting, is psychological extremism. So to be an extremist in the psychological sense is to have what I call an extremist mindset. So I think there are a whole bunch of characteristic pre, you know, preoccupations and attitudes and thinking styles that are part of the extremist mindset. Um, and you certainly find all of these in, in, in someone like Atta, who I think is the sort of paradigmatic individual with an extremist, uh, extremist mindset so all of these things are distinct but sometimes come together in a particular individual like Atta, who has the whole package all all elements of this and that i think is where one needs to kind of start in a discussion of uh, the nature of extremism and pathways to extremism and my own real interest in the uh, i mean i'm interested in you know methods and ideological extremism but i think the psychological stuff is the most you know is the most most interesting in lots of ways
1: can you be one type of extremist so do you need to have all three or can you be a for example a psychological extremist but maybe not an ideological or methods extremist or do they all kind of go together no
0: i think they can be they they can be separate right so so the, the straightforward uh, illustration of an ideological extremist who's who's you're not a methods extremist is is the armchair extremist, right? So this is someone who has extreme views but isn't inclined to act on them. I mean, they might, you know, in some abstract sense endorse extreme methods or endorse violence, but they're certainly not methods extremists in the sense of people who are willing to use violence. Um, so that's a that's a kind of straightforward sense in which you can be an ideological extremist but not a, not a, not a methods extremist. If you're thinking about psychological extremism, I mean, so this is, a, this is a really interesting question, right? So can you be a psychological extremist, but not an ideological extremist? Now, one thing that people sometimes say is that, yeah, sure, you can, right? Because you can have a, an extremist mindset, but be ideologically very liberal. So, you know, why can't you be a kind of extremist liberal in that sense? So you're not on the ext- extreme left or extreme right of the ideological spectrum, but you are an extremist in a psychological sense. Now that I think is more problematic. But to understand why it's problematic, I think one would need to kind of delve a bit more into what I'm talking about when I talk about the you know the extremist mindset. So you know, so maybe now would be a good time to say a little bit more about you know what I mean by this. So when I talk about, a, you know, a mindset, a, a person's mindset is made up of all sorts of different things. But I'm, I'm, I'm not talking primarily about a person's beliefs. Uh, what, what I'm talking about is is something rather different. You know, so one thing that I think extremists have, psychological extremists have, uh, is a whole bunch of attitudes that I think are characteristic of extremism. Right. So here are here are some attitudes that I think are. Are shared by extremists of the right and of the left, and Islamists and other kinds of extremists. Okay, so one is extreme hostility to compromise. That is, you know, part of being an extremist. the, the, the belief that compromises are not to be entertained. That compromise, to compromise is to is to sell out. Another attitude I think that many extremists have is is pro violence. Maybe, you know, it's possible to be an extremist without being pro-violent. I mean, you know, maybe there are some kinds of extremism that have nothing to do with violence, but a lot of, a lot of psychological extremism, I think, does have to do with violence, a kind of pro-attitude to violence, so anti-compromise, pro-violence. Uh, extremists tend to be against pluralism. They, you know, they tend to think that there's one right way to live, there's one right way for society to be organized. And that, and that all other ways of doing things are just wrong and worthless and need to be destroyed or suppressed. So those are examples of extremist attitudes. Then there are things that I call preoccupations. So I think that ex- extremists have an, a, a whole bunch of preoccupations or what you might think of as obsessions. Um, you know, so they're, they're preoccupied with purity. You know, they're preoccupied with their religious purity or their ideological purity or their racial purity. And indeed, that's why they don't like compromise, right? They don't like compromise because they think that compromise is, is, is a kind of dilution. It's incompatible with the kind of purity that they, they seek. I mean, something else that extremists have in common, I think, is, is, is a sense of their own virtue. And this is a very odd thing, but extremists tend to believe that they are, they are standing up for the truth. They're standing up for the true, you know, for the true path. And that they're sacrificing themselves uh, for you know for a good cause. I mean, no doubt that's what Arta thought. Right? It's an incredible thought that he could have he could have thought that, but I'm sure he did think that. Right? Uh, uh, and, and so there's this kind of preoccupation with it, with virtue, which I think is a big part of extremism. And then a preoccupation with their own victimhood. Extremists tend to think of themselves and their in group as victims of persecution or oppression by outside forces, and that's why they think that they are heroic or virtuous, right, because they're standing up to this obsession. So those are some examples of attitudes and preoccupations. And then when you come to thinking, I think that, you know, extremists tend to engage in conspiracy thinking, as we've discussed. I think many extremists tend to engage in apocalyptic thinking of one form or another. You see this, you know, with ISIS, where the whole ISIS outlook is all about you know, is all about the, you know, the coming apoco- apocalypse and actually making it happen. Extremists also, I think, tend to engage in catastrophic thinking. There's always some catastrophe that's around the corner, which it's their job to avert. So, so these are all elements of extremist, you know, the extremist psychology. And, you know, and then if you say, well, why can't you have all of those and be a liberal? Well, you know, you can't, right? Because liberalism means a <coughs> commitment to pluralism. And you can't have the extremist mindset and be a pluralist. And maybe there are other elements of the extremist mindset that are incompatible with liberalism. So I think that you know the relationship between your ideology and your mindset is is quite complicated. I don't think it's true that any ideology is compatible with any mindset. I think I think the extremist mindset sits more easily with ideologies that are themselves extremist, and I think that these ideologies are going to be more attractive to people with an extre- with an extremist mindset if you are psychologically moderate you know you believe in compromise you believe in pl- you know pluralism you're not very keen on violence you basically are pro tolerance well you're not going to you know you're not going to be a fascist right if that's if that's how you are psychologically so uh, i think you know your psychology your mindset i think is really kind of important in as it were determining or at least constraining where you stand on the, ideological, on the ideological spectrum.
1: It, it seems as if, and in a lot of cases, when we talk about extremism, we talk in terms of left and right or liberal and conservative in the American sense. But I, I think there's, it seems to me that there's almost like an X, Y axis. And on one side, you you know, on the, let's call it the the horizontal axis, you have your, your left and right in terms of ideology. And then on your... Vertical axes, you have your uh, your tolerance, let's say, of liberalism or your tolerance of uh, other viewpoints and your tolerance of the ability for uh, those of other viewpoints to coexist. I think that's
0: that's absolutely right. You know, think about the left and right spectrum, liberals at one end and conservatives at the other. I mean, one thing to say, you know, right away is that there are a lot of people who are extremists who are very hard to locate on that spectrum. So, uh, Osama bin Laden was an extremist. Was he left wing or right wing? I mean, it's kind of hard to say, right, where you would place him on the left or right spectrum. So, if his ideology was extremist, the sense in which it was an extremist ideology has to be understood in some other way, not in terms of left and right, but in some other way. You know, so then you get into, well, what. What do we say about Bin Laden's ideology? Why do we want to call it an extremist ideology? Well, so one thing you know that one might say is that it was um, a pro-violence ideology. Another thing one might say is that it's an authoritarian ideology. You now, so you might think that ideologies can be classified not just in terms of left and right, but in terms of their attitudes to violence, in terms of their the extent of their authoritarianism and now if you do it that way then you're going to get a kind of different picture you know so if you think of ideologies of the extreme left and extreme right which are at opposite ends of the left to right spectrum are going to come out at the same end of the authoritarianism spectrum right because they're both authoritarian ideologies and an extreme anti-authoritarian ideology would be i guess it would be anarchism right that would, that would be um at the other end of the ideological other end of that spectrum of the authoritarianism spectrum. Uh, So I think that there are, you know, there are multiple different ways of classifying ideologies, there is more than one spectrum, you know, ideological space is multi dimensional, and an ideology that is extremist along one dimension might not be extremist along another dimension. And of course, even if you look at a single dimension, what counts as extreme even along the left to right spectrum is it of course varies historically and you know and culturally so you know should women have the vote well if you think that women should have the vote that's not going to make you anything very unusual in ideological terms today but wind the clock back 100 years or so and it would have made you <clears throat> quite distinctive um, so that's uh, uh I mean, that's just scratching the surface. There's a lot more to be said about ideological extremism. But I think the single take-home message, I think, is that you know, ideological extremism is not just one thing. I mean, you might want to say, well, it is one thing in the sense that it's being at an extreme end of a spectrum. But there's not just one spectrum. There are, mul- you know, there's, there are multiple spectrums or spectra, whatever the plural is.
1: One of the big things that uh, I think we wrestled with during 9-11, and, and I think one of the things that here in the United States were wrestling with today with uh, again we'll use COVID as an example and uh, the disinformation circling around there is the idea of how do we address the issue and one of the commonly prescribed solutions is to throttle information. If you throttle the source of conspiracy theories so which today is is social media and I think back around 9-11 was probably more primitive like you know, chat rooms and, and email and so on, but if you throttle those sources of information, the problem would resolve. And is there anything in your work that indicates one way or the other, or anything in, in what you in, in your research that indicates one way or the other, is that a good method for addressing the issue? Well, I mean, so
0: for a start, you guys have a constitution, right? And I think that there's a right to free speech under your constitution. So one would need to be very careful about what one understands, what one means by throttling, uh, you know, throttling the flow of information. Um, So, so there are, you know, there are some kind of practical, some practical issues here, even even if one thought that that was the key to dealing with these theories. I mean, something else to point out is that is that you know, there's a tendency to think that that, that conspiracy theories are more prevalent today than they've they've ever been in the past, and that this is all down to social media. Uh, I I think it's not actually even obvious that conspiracy theories are more prevalent today, or at least that belief in conspiracy theories is more common today than in the past. Uh, So there was a a very interesting um, uh, book published a few years ago called American Conspiracy Theories, which is a study by a couple of political scientists of... The prevalence of belief in conspiracy theories in the u.s from roughly speaking 1890 to 2010 and they found that actually belief in conspiracy theories was more prevalent earlier on in american history earlier on in the 20th century than in in 2010 so that goes completely against the idea that you know, we're dealing here with a with a uniquely modern phenomenon. Now, of course, 2010 is a long time ago now, and maybe things have changed. You know, maybe maybe social media, of course, has grown enormously since 2010. So maybe things are different now. But I, I I think that you know, before jumping to the conclusion that you know more people believe conspiracy theories today than ever before, and that this is all the fault of social media, I think one needs to make sure that one's getting one's facts right here. And this, admittedly, one study suggested, you know, maybe we aren't. So so then you have the, you know, the obvious kind of follow-up to that, which is, well, all right, well, what do we do then? If you don't think that we should restrain people's free speech, we shouldn't throttle these theories, uh, and social media is what it is, and uh, we just have to kind of deal with it, what do we do uh, about these conspiracy theories? I, I think that, you know, what one thing that you can do is to Not just try to rebut these theories because rebuttals aren't really going to get you anywhere, but try and, you know, actually try and draw attention to the agendas of the people promoting these theories. Actually trying to raise questions about them. You know, what's in it for them? How do they benefit from these conspiracy theories that they're promoting? What are the political benefits to them? What are the financial benefits to them? And, and, And try and sort of pursue this idea that if what attracts you to these theories is this self image that you have, of yourself as being a kind of skeptical, questioning person who wants to do their own research, well, why don't you extend that skepticism to the people who promote these theories in the first place? Right? Why don't you extend your doubts and your questioning attitude to, as it were, the producers of these theories? Why don't you ask the question who benefits about conspiracy theories as well as about the people that these conspiracy theories are supposedly you know, un- un- uncovering? So that would be, you know, there's some sort of kind of practical advice on how one might respond to these theories. But I, I, you know, I don't I don't claim that this is going to solve the problem, but it might it might it might help anyway.
1: Well, I certainly didn't have you on this show making you promise to solve the world's problems today. So I think we'll all forgive you if you <laughs> Good. if we haven't cured extremism in the past hour. It, you know, it, it it sounds to me, too, like in today's day and age, it's not an issue of. Are people more likely or less likely to believe them? Are there more conspiracy theories or fewer due to technology? It sounds more like we're just at a point where the consequences of it are a little more dire. I think that's a that's a very
0: good way of that's a good way of putting it. I mean, you know, January the sixth, we saw the consequences in the most, you know, the most striking and most vivid way. 9-11, we saw the consequences of the fact that these people who did 9-11 you know subscribe to you know conspiracy theories um so yeah i mean i think that's i think i think that's actually kind of a good way uh, you know a good way of, of of putting it things have just much worse consequences and things circulate more you know more rapidly because of
1: uh because of the internet i hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did Please leave it a review. We need more people like you in this conversation. Now, Kasim's new book, Extremism, A Philosophical Analysis, can be found on most online book retailers, and I will also have links to this and his other works in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just click Episodes in the upper right-hand corner and ye shall find. Now, as I was editing this episode, I couldn't help but see echoes of our current political dialogue here in the U.S. when Kasim spoke of psychological extremism, because on both ends of the political spectrum, we seem to see compromise as a sin, with moderates like Susan Collins on the right or Joe Manchin on the left vilified for their willingness to cross lines of ideological purity. and The other thing I was thinking is, if the research indicates that there were just as many conspiracy theories floating around in years prior as there are today, why does it seem there are more political extremists in the United States than there were in years prior? And I can't help but think this environment is due to eroding trust in government from things like the war on Iraq, and the financial crisis, and it's really odd that in an effort to fight extremism abroad 20 years ago, we ended up making the perfect conditions for it at home. Circle of life, folks. I'd be interested in your thoughts, so you can hit me up on Twitter at DanSally or shoot me an email at HeyDan, that's hey as in hey, Dan as in my name, at YDHTY.com. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye bye.